Weed Like a Word. Welcome back to Weed Like a Word, part three with Stephanie Scott, author of What's Left of Me is Yours, with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Golgan. One of the things that was interesting about your story is... So the daughter discovers that her mother was murdered and takes her a while to find that out. And then she goes looking for the guy. But she doesn't seem necessarily, it's not vengeance that's driving her. She kind of wants to know why, I suppose. Vengeance doesn't seem to be a thing, which I find interesting. Am I right? Um, well, I would say that actually she's, she faces many different conflicts. Because she's also a lawyer by training, she's really been taught to approach cases like this, matters of human relationships like this, with a detached professional eye. And she's really at war with her professional self throughout the novel because she's also a daughter and um, a daughter of a murdered, a murder victim. And she finds that, I think, extremely difficult. Um, she's also an only child and she's raised by her grandfather, Yoshi, who is also a lawyer. And I think like many only children, she's very adult and very contained um and it is it is a nature it is the nature i think in um in many asian societies to to be externally very contained and and internally to have a lot more going on and i i really drew from my own background when i was creating simico in that respect um because i'm very interested in the internal and external selves that manifest um in japan but also particularly in asia and she very much follows that so I think it's a constant struggle for her between vengeance and also using her detached academic mind to assess what actually happened. I think if all of her buttons were pushed in concert and she were left alone with him, I don't know. I don't, I don't actually know what she would do. I don't know what she would be capable of. I'm not sure she knows. I suppose there's a weird thing that there are three people, or maybe four, I suppose. There's her actual father, the ex-husband of her mother. There's the lover who killed her, the marriage breaker of her, her grandfather and herself. Those are the four people who knew her late mother. So maybe he has got a lot of value as in a resource of, I don't know, information and about her well, mom. Def- in, in, in that he's um, really, he's the one who's, who has this unique knowledge of Rena and he has the memories of her. And in, in many ways, what, you know, this crucial part of her that survives is locked away in his mind. So, you know, different characters in the book respond to this differently. Rena's father, Sumiko's grandfather, obviously just wants Kaitaro dead, which is, I think, very understandable. And, you know, the way that Rena does die is, is completely inexcusable. But also, you know, you're right that there is a value to him, particularly for Sumiko, in that he contains parts of her mother's life that she was not privy to that, that remain in his memory. And, you know, she wants as much access to those those elements of her mother's life as possible. How far did you have to go? Because it's a, the Japanese culture is very alien to Western eyes, many aspects of it. How far, how deep did you have to go into Japanese culture to really understand the motivations of the individuals in the book? Well, I mean, really, the novel is about humanity and the study of love within it is incredibly uh, global. So in terms of in terms of the people that I was studying, it was re- I really just, it really involved just a lot of empathy and understanding the structures within which their, their lives functioned. From a, from a cultural perspective, I think growing up in Singapore and 
you know, with my, I have family connections to Japan. I think that helped a great deal, but I also did a lot of work. Um, I won an award for my anthropological work on this, on this novel. Um, I read but, that, yes. But really, which funded um, the trips to Japan. And I spent a great deal of time working with lawyers, both in Tokyo and uh, prosecutors at the Japanese embassy in London. And I'm, I'm very, very fascinated um, by by anthropological study and and cultures all all around the world um, but what interested me most I suppose was the similarities between mm. between all of us and that's what I really sought to draw out in the novel you know that we are that our similarities are far greater than our differences couldn't agree more it's just, you know that sort of thing should never get in the way of the story but you know yeah. if you get one aspect of it wrong there'll be a million and six people who understand Japanese say they'd never say that they'd never do that well, so it, it's, and I mean I'm fascinated by etymology as well and you know particularly I think Japanese is a very beautiful language but I definitely had to work with translators to ensure mm -hmm. that the language in the novel is correct and do you know if it's been published in Japan Oh, it has. It's it's on sale in Tokyo now, actually. Yeah, I, I was sent... That'll be interesting to see the reaction. Yeah. That was marvellous. Um, and actually, mm. the um, the bookstore's really gotten behind it. It's in pride of place, and it has its own little plaque, um, and which says new on it. And that was a very beautiful thing to see, and a friend, a friend sent that photo through. And, and it's a bookstore in Shinjuku, I think, where part of the novel takes place. So that was particularly... That's fantastic. So this is a new book, as you said. Bad time, hard time to launch the book. Yes, it's been it's been extremely difficult. And one of the most difficult things has has been, you know, all the bookstores being shut. So when my novel came out, we were in full lockdown. So um, all of the all of the normal lovely events and acts that you get you get to do as an author, like dropping off books at your local bookstore or meeting readers or going to events, you know, none of that was possible, which is, which has resulted in a sort of bizarre extension of the writing process, because we all write in isolation at our desks in our pajamas. And in a way, for me, that hasn't changed post publication, <laughs> which is quite <laughs> odd. And, and it also makes you feel that, you know, just as the book was all in your head, maybe publication and everything is still all in your head you know there's no closure there's no distancing I'm has it really happened yeah. yeah exactly i'm still in my study i'm wearing the same clothes so, so i would i, I would really we put really clothes on i know i can confirm so, that we are we're all uh, very respectively dressed uh, <laughs> yeah. i would love to see um the book in a bookstore it would be really nice to, to meet people and I think actually social media has been quite lovely in that respect in that particularly people on Instagram it used to alarm me initially uh, when we started the run-up to publication in that people from all over would just message you in the middle of the night with their thoughts about your novel because they were reading um, a proof or an arc. <laughs> I was really, really startled by that, having been in my own world for so long. But another really lovely facet of social media is that you do get to hear from readers. You don't get to see them, but you do get yeah. to hear from them. And that has been really And it's a lovely looking book. It deserves to be seen. Thank it's a lovely you. looking book. It has gold foil. It's so beautiful. I know, I know. And be seen it's meant to be displayed i know it's just just devastating um it'll get there it'll get there what, what would be your your bookshop of choice in england oh um i really love pages of hackney and um, so i would love to do an event there um or see the book there that would be that would be really lovely would there be a part of the book you'd fancy reading really <laughs> oh, um okay 
My mother was a photographer before she became a wife. Each year, when we went to the sea, Mama would play with me on the beach, taking roll after roll of film. Grandpa sent these off to Kodak to be made into Kodachrome slides, and in the autumn, as the leaves darkened and we returned to Tokyo, my mother would open a bottle of Coca-Cola at Grandpa's house in Meguro, and we would watch the slides all at once on the projector. I still have them, these home movies of sorts. They're in the basement of the Meguro house, filed away in narrow leather boxes. Sometimes I go down there to look at the slides. They are beautiful, each one a rectangular jewel encased in white card. I can see my mother in miniature biting the cone of an ice cream, me in the sand with my red bucket, my swimsuit damp from the sea, grandpa sheltering under an umbrella, even though he is already in the shade. I have other memories too, but they are not of Shimoda. These appear to me as glimpses and flashes. In my mind's eye, the line of the coast straightens, the rocky inlets of Shimoda are replaced by an open harbour, and I hear the slap of my feet on concrete as I run and run. There are moments of clarity, liquid scenes. I see a yacht on the waves, its sails stretched taut. I feel strong arms lifting me into the air. I turn away from the bright sun glinting off a camera lens. A man's hand offers me a cone of red bean ice cream, a man with long, elegant fingers that do not belong to my father. I have never found these images in my grandfather's basement, but sometimes I wake in the night to the caramel scent of red beans. A breeze lingers in the air, and there is an echo of people talking in the distance, but perhaps it is only the whir of the ceiling fan, or Hanai Suzuki buns left to cool in the kitchen. Very nice, yes. Very nice. Thank I you. hope you're doing your own audio book. No, I didn't. Hanako, although Hanako Footman reads it spectacularly, and, and actually in the US mm. and the UK, they, they've done their own audio versions, which I can only take as a sign of passion. They, they were supposed yeah. to supposed to just choose one <laughs> just well not. it's um it's, it's a curious thing i know when my first audiobook was done um they got rula lenska to uh, to do it and she brought something to it which i would never have seen i think having an actor playing the parts it just it just added a whole new dimension to it because of course she came up with accents and 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 the way that people speak it's a bit yeah. weird the first time she think oh i didn't think she spoke like that but it grows on you it's, it's nice i like it, it. Is. If they're able to differentiate between all the different voices, mm. it's extremely difficult. So yeah, I, I admire you can do it tremendously. I'm not sure I would take it on myself. Question from listener Janice. Mm. She says, I'd like to ask, aren't love, marriage, divorce and murder all just different manifestations of human passion? As your book is based on a true crime, how do you tell the story and allow the characters to express these passions whilst remaining neutral and non-judgmental. And then I'm joining in with that and saying, that's assuming you do remain neutral and non-judgmental, maybe you don't. That's a really, it's a really lovely question. And it's interesting because obviously, I think as an author, you do have a position, but you want to, you want the fiction to remain nuanced and multifaceted. And, and of course you don't want judgment to come into it. So the way I approached it is really just through empathy, which is probably a chronic condition amongst writers, in that you, you look at people from all sorts of different angles and you try to sympathise with each one. You may not agree with them. I mean, certainly I think 
you know, the murder at the heart of the novel is horrendous and it's tragic that so many women die in this way all over the world every day. But, you know, I think you're really trying to bring out the humanity and the nuance and the, the light and the darkness within people. You know, I think there can be a lot of, particularly in contemporary culture, there can be a great deal of polarization between good and bad and someone is either entirely good or entirely bad. And that is very rarely actually the case. So I wanted to explore all of the different characters from lots of different angles and really just put them in situations and, and see how they've responded. And that often surprised me. There are, of course, characters that I just don't like. Rena's husband, Sato, I, I really don't like him and I, I never will. And he, he emerged fully formed. And, and I think I, I really, I understood him. I knew what kind of man he was. I knew what drove him. And I, I could see sympathetic aspects of him, which I tried to bring out. But uh, there aren't many. So. <laughs> All the interesting stuff about humans is in the grey areas. Because we, we can all be placed in situations where we could jump one way or the other depending on yeah. circumstances. And that's where all the interesting stuff is. Exactly. Did you find your loyalties shifting as you wrote? Oh, definitely. Uh, because I think to inhabit a character and to be in their mind, you have to see things entirely from their point of view. And so my perspectives would change very much, you know, whether depending on whether I was in Yoshi's head and he's thinking about his daughter and how she died. And he obviously has extremely strong views about what should happen to the perpetrator of her murder. Uh, and then whether I'm, I was in Sumiko's head and, you know, she's trying to be professional, but it's also extremely personal and very close to the bone. And, you know, how she manages to think through matters and be quite clinical and also control her rage. And, and then also writing from Kaitaro's perspective or Sato's perspective you know he wishes I think he ex he expects he expected things from his marriage that he did not get and I think he wanted his wife to love him but on his terms and so to inhabit his head was quite a shift and also to inhabit Kaitaro's head particularly when he's you know been hired to do a job and he's falling in love with this woman and and he doesn't want to do the job anymore and he has to lie to everybody his bosses um, his target who's becoming his lover uh, so yes there was constant shifting but I think that's that's probably why we're well you tell me why we're drawn to writing and that you can be a bit of a chameleon good answer yes I may steal that in future <laughs> <laughs> well we're coming up to the end of this part three of Weed Like a Word thank you very much indeed Stephanie Scott for uh, reading from and talking about your excellent book What's Left of Me is Yours and shedding light on this really, really dodgy aspect of Japanese society. Um, next time, unusually, we can tell you what's coming up next time on We'd Like a Word. We're going to be talking about editing, like structural editing and copy editing. Uh, I suppose the people who, um, not in Stephanie's case, of course, her book was perfect from the start, but <laughs> lots of writers, me included, benefit hugely from a good structural editor. So we're going to be hearing from two of them talking about the secrets of what they actually do and the horrors they encounter and fix. Uh, Russell McLean and Linda Nagel, they will be on Weed Like a Word next time. So if you have any questions about editing, copy editing, structural editing, what do they do, things you love or hate about them, or Russell's writing or Linda's work, get in touch. And the email is... Weed Like a Word, although we can't use an apostrophe, of course, so it's wed like a word at gmail.com and any other comments that you have. Uh, but in the meantime, thanks for listening to Weed Like Word. I've been Paul Waters. I've been Stephen Colgan. And I'm Stephanie Scott. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, Thank you. Good luck with bye, the book. Bye. 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 bye.
Bye. Bye. Bye.